You're listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. This episode features audio from a previously aired live video webcast. to Sagas and Sass Season 4, brought to you by Geek Saga Entertainment. I'm Tara, along with fellow hosts Jonathan and Nami, and guest host Steve. This episode will cover Ruin, Part 4 of Golden Sun, the second installment in Pierce Brown's Red Rising Saga. Please note that if you're watching this as a webcast, there is a chance you will hear some spoilers for other books in the Red Rising series during our live webcast. However, if you are listening to this as a podcast, any spoilery bits have been edited out. If you're watching live, join us in the chat or after the fact, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Sagas and Sass, or email us at sagasandsass at gmail.com to continue the conversation. Additionally, please note that the views expressed in this show are those of the host as individuals and do not necessarily represent the show as a whole. And in case you haven't checked out our Patreon, it offers tons of ways to support us and receive some great perks in return. You can find it at patreon.com slash geeksaga underscore entertainment. Now, before we get started on the actual discussion, it is birthday week for yeah. both myself and Steve. <laughs> birthday week, so we're going to pop some champ as yeah, Steve and I do. <laughs> I can get it open. I'm so scared to do this on screen. Oh, I, look, that happened so easily. Well, I can toast with black cherry vanilla seltzer. Ooh, I like it. Sounds yummy. <laughs> so, it's, bub it's bubbly. I'm so you're good. With water, you degenerates. <laughs> I think that's like a, you're not supposed to toast with water, is what I heard, but I was like, that sounds lame. That's lame. Hydrate so, is great. Steve is being an adult and pouring his champ into a glass. I, however, am just going to drink out of my bottle here. <laughs> As per the usual. It's a nice and fire con thing. If anybody's listening to this, I run a Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones convention. It's been mentioned before, but I don't think on any of our Red Rising episodes. So that's how we all know each other. And uh, drinking champ together is mine and Steve's thing. So happy birthday to us. Yay, yay, yay. Is yours a big birthday or is it a normal birthday, Steve? Uh, big one. Oh, for, uh, is this the same as mine? Yep. I'm not saying how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, on that note, I can't believe we are finally here. The end of Golden Sun. And we're kicking off this episode with chapters 40 through 42. The girl presses the button on the globe, and that's when we begin to die. So, an EMP has taken out all of the electronics for Dara's team, causing them to fall either into the muddy riverbank or in the river itself, because if you recall, all of their weapons be electric, and their armor, and their everything. Their protective star shells are now their coffins, but this isn't the first or even the second time Darrow has been left in the muck and mire to die. It's the third, and he's pretty, he's pretty good at it, because this time, this time, he at least has a razor. After feeling sorry for himself and, you know, panicking because dying for a bit, he realizes that the razor is curled around his arm, and now it could save his life. Possibly for the price of a limb, just as the sling blade could have when he was just a helldiver in the mines of Legos. But it is because Darrow was a helldiver that he is able to carve <laughs> his way free of his starshell prison. 
He only has the time to save one other, and so he swims to the largest star shell he sees, which happens to be Ragnar's coffin because the dude is eight feet tall. Darrow cuts his friend free, and they swim to the surface, and they see their allies buried in the mud around them as the graves move through the field, uh, methodically just murdering everyone in sight. Darrow and Ragnar cake themselves in mud for camouflage, and then Darrow finds a razor and hands it to Ragnar, who drops it like it is made of fire. Darrow reminds him that the gold aren't gods, and then the two of them scuttle amongst their enemies like tiny murderous crabs, killing as many as they can as the moments tick by, and all Darrow can really think about is how much time his friends have before their oxygen runs out. Eventually, they run into some golds who try to take the time to recite their names and accomplishments. Ugh. And then Darrow tells Ragnar to just just kill him. And, like, this gold immediately proves he's an absolute fool by calling Ragnar a dog. I am a man! Roars Ragnar, and then he cuts the gold down. Darrow and Ragnar ferry their people from the bottom of the river, and while Severo, Clown, Pebble, Screwface, and Thistle are still alive, those are the only ones, along with just 11 of 50 obsidians. So many others are dead. And when Thistle sees Ragnar holding a razor, she snaps at him to drop it, which he does, looking to Darrow in a panic. But now's not the time, because the Howlers are mourning their own. Rotback is dead, Harpy died before even hitting the ground, and then there's Weed, who Pebble, Clown, and Severo mourn over in such a visceral way that Darrow actually wonders for a moment if he's lost Severo. Are you with me? He asks. Severo? Severo's crying, his voice is cracking, but he insists. Always, Darrow, always. There's no more time for mourning, and there are difficult decisions to be made. Darrow picks up a discarded razor from the mud and hands it to Ragnar, telling not just him, but the other remaining obsidians, it's a man's duty to choose their own destiny, and they must choose theirs. Ragnar takes the razor, but Thistle once again balks at this, asking Darrow what he is doing, even trying to rip the razor from Ragnar's hand. After Severo tells her to shut up, threatening, Give me the blade, or I'll cut away the hand that holds it. Several, however, is having none of this absolute bullshit and threatens to cut his fellow holler down. And still, Thistle looks to her fellow hollers to back her. But Pebble and Clown aren't about to mess with this bullshit. When Clown essentially asks Daryl what's going on, Daryl simply reminds them of their time at the Institute, how he bleeds for those who follow him and does not take the allegiance of slaves. Let's be real. Daryl's right. The Howlers shouldn't be surprised by this, and maybe only are because it's quote-unquote real life, and Clown isn't wrong when he points out that this is a slippery slope, but then Darrow and Severo play not-so-secret Santa and give all of the remaining Obsidians razors and send them off to fight, and only Thistle still seems to be questioning this decision. At this point, Darrow knows that Thistle will not follow him after this, but as usual with Darrow, that's another problem for another day. For now, he orders the Howlers to remove their armor because they need to move fast, and while there definitely aren't enough of them to actually deal with the Sovereign and her Praetorians, and who knows what the fuck else, they have to be on their way as quickly as possible. Severo moves ahead to help guide their way, and after several forays into enemy territory, he returns to report that Ragnar got the gates open, their men are pouring in, the Wind Knight is dead, Cassius was nearly cut down, Darrow and his remaining forces are still struggling to reach their goal, the Citadel, and when they do, it's anything but triumphant. Those walls are high, y'all, and Severo is the last member of the party with a sort of working grab boots. He's only able to set Darrow atop the wall, and then the shield falls, which means Darrow is left with a choice. And he's done with allowing his friends to sacrifice their lives for his cause. Despite Severo's protests, 
he runs faster than he ever has because he's, you know, Darrow, and he can't accept that the Sovereign might escape his grasp. Darrow might be fast, but he's also not exactly in tip-top shape after the EMP and the race through Aegea and Wave's hand, all that. So while he makes it to the Citadel, it's just in time to see the Sovereign and her entourage taking off in a shuttle. Which he promptly boards by leaping into the air, barely catching the lip of the ramp and holding on for dear life as the ship rises and the ramp continues to close. Against all odds, or maybe not because, again, this is magical boy Darrow we're talking about, he actually makes it into the bay. But lo, the Sovereign is still chilling right there with all her peeps. Seriously, though, Darrow, how are you shocked that in that wee span of time they would have already settled in elsewhere? Now, Darrow does have a pulse grenade, so for about half a second, it seems like he has the upper hand. Or not, because Octavia orders the pilot to do a barrel roll, and oh, there goes Darrow's grenade! Sigh. So, it is once again time for Darrow to fight for his life as he faces down the Sovereign's groupies, including Aja, Fitchner, and Karnas. And Karnas being Karnas, he's the first to charge, despite Octavia ordering that Fitchner be the one to take Darrow's head. But with a flip and a stab, Darrow takes him out. Bye, Karnas, no one will miss you. Not that Darrow escaped unscathed. He's even more injured now. And the Sovereign once again commands Fitchner to deal with him. At this point, Darrow absolutely believes he's going to die, but as he speaks what he clearly believes are his final words, that he wants Fitchner to tell Mustang and Eo somehow, for some reason, <laughs> that he loves them, he doesn't quite get the response he expected. Because, oh yeah, it turns out Fitchner is Ares, and he tosses a sonic grenade at Octavia and her minions and howls as he leaps from the ship with Darrow in his arms like, holy shit, y'all. <laughs> <sighs> I mean, besides the giant reveal at the end, I do want to take a moment to just praise Magical Boy Darrow because, like, <laughs> if that isn't the truthiest truth to truth, I do not know what is. Cheers to that. Cheers to Magical Boy Pour Darrow. Pour one back for Magical Boy Darrow. But then also, like, what the hell, Darrow? Like, he's, I feel like he's constantly doing something similar to this. Mm -hmm. Man, you got to take a buddy with you. The, the buddy system. Yeah. We never go alone, Darrow. Come on. <laughs> the grab boots did fail. Nobody else can climb up the wall. I get nope. I'm I'm done justifying Darrow's just <laughs> like saying nobody else can is probably incorrect. It's just that he's the fastest i don't know I, well and, and to be fair he does have the buddy system thing down at the beginning of yeah, this section true. when him and ragnar escaped the muddy trap that was laid for them and need to you know rescue the other howlers but uh he for five minutes as a crab and then he was like no buddies only i will die for the cause <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and at that point, there's absolutely no way either one of them would have survived on their own because Darrow couldn't have done it on his own and Ragnar wouldn't have picked up the razor without Darrow's insistence. Oh, of course. Yeah. When we said in the summary that Ragnar dropped it like it was made of fire, the reasoning for this is very specific. Darrow says that it's only ever seen, the razor has only ever seen gold hands, no Praetorian, no obsidian, not even one of those with the badges from the Sovereign herself has ever touched this weapon. Not since the Dark Revolt anyway, which is when the obsidians rose. And for them, they've been taught, Ragnar has been taught that to touch a razor means death by starvation 
no possibility of reaching Valhalla. So they've really uh, instilled some shit in these obsidians, as we've talked about before. Another thing that they say that that like Dara says that was like really like visual is that he's like imagine if somebody handed you Mjolnir. It, it's like he handed. Ragnar Mjolnir was like, go off, bud. And Ragnar's like, excuse me. Uh, I am not God of Thunder. Although, to be fair, if he handed Ragnar Mjolnir, Ragnar, if he wasn't worthy, would just be like, whoop, on the ground. So, in Ragnar's mind, he was whoop, on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> he just kind of like froze deer in the headlights as the kids say ragnar is also my little meow meow because i just he is eight feet tall but i would just like him to stoop down or just like crouch so i could just pat him on the head and be like <laughs> you're doing great buddy finding your own motivations for existing good job and it says so much in this scene where even though the howlers the most dedicated of the dedicated are Daryl, what are you doing? This is our thing. That that's our heritage. That's our birthright that you're handing mm. to that obsidian. Well, one of the howlers said that. Yeah, one of the howlers. Others sort of eh. on the on the fence, but because it was Darrow telling them, they're like they were cool with it. But yeah, to what you were saying, Steve, the other howlers, like while it's mostly just Thistle, the other ones, like I guess it's just Pebble and Clown now because P.S. They lost a ton of people thanks to this trap, including several howlers. Harpy, mm -hmm. of course, died before they landed, but Weed and Rotback died at some point afterward. And so now, like, of all the howlers from the Institute that were with them, it's just Severo, Pebble, and Clown. And Pebble and Clown are a mess about weeds, so they're kind of in their own world. But yes, it's because Darrow is doing it and telling them it's okay. But I think if Severo hadn't been backing Darrow, then it would have been more than just Clown saying, mm, slippery slope, my dude. But man, yeah, this one needs to just calm down a bit. Take a chill pill. Uh, yeah, he even he even notes uh, in that where he thinks that he's lost Thistle, I believe, mm -hmm. in that in that chapter. She needs to drink some sleepy time tea. As I recall earlier in the book, when Severo and Darrow were discussing who would care if he was a red, Severo mentioned that Thistle is rogue. She'll never go along with it. Clown and Pebble might. It's interesting that he brought her up at that point because i mean i remember even on rereads to me there's not really any sign because we don't really know much about this and there's not really any sign that she wouldn't go along with it other than severo saying no she wouldn't which i get pierce doesn't have time to on the page to show us why all of the characters that wouldn't go along wouldn't go along but it seems like a random throw in like oh i need one more howler to be an asshole not just rogue <laughs> <laughs> Who's it going to be? Maybe he pulled that name out of a hat too, like he did when he killed Pax. Like he just put all the Howler's names in a hat and was like, okay, okay, shake it up, shake it up. Oh, it's Thistle. Thistle's the other asshole. <laughs> I don't know that for sure, but that's what I imagine happening. You just know it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so Mustang is able to kill the shield around Aegea, and Darrow, you know, knows that they have to get to the Citadel before the Sovereign can escape. I mean, he is just so obsessed with not letting her escape. It's like he has a crush on her. Sorry, okay, I'm done. Bye. Like, why are you so obsessed? <laughs> Please continue to the real points and not just me trolling. But, yeah, but he won't lead his pack into a meat grinder, so he decides to, you guessed it, change the paradigm. Change the paradigm. I feel like that's that's got to be a drinking game. Every time the word paradigm is mentioned in these books, take a drink. 
I feel like this has potential. I feel like we could go somewhere with this, where everyone oh. in the every every everyone in the room just stops and yells, "Change the paradigm." I yeah. feel like I would die. <laughs> like I, I don't think I would make it. That's our drinking game this weekend, Nami, to get everybody we're with in Vegas to say the word paradigm at some point. Oh my god. <laughs> None of these other people have read this series, so honestly, it would just be really funny to try to get them to say this word because it's yeah. not a word you use in like daily speak. Yeah. That also, would be pretty also good. the funniest thing is that like I feel like even people who are smart and educated don't just drop paradigm in like regular conversations. So this is gonna be a tough one, but I am down for this game. I think other than hands, it's Pierce's favorite word. Yeah. Definitely. Hand, hands first. <laughs> well, anyway, so Darrow has this whole thing where he thinks some men have threads of life so strong that they fray and snap those around them. Enough friends have paid for my war. This one's on me, which is, you know, altruistic and all, but also probably really stupid. Yes, really stupid because he, well, he doesn't have the army he planned to have. Now he's also going to be completely alone if he reaches the Citadel on time, which he does, only to land himself or rather jump himself onto the Sovereign's escaping shuttle and, you know, right into the enemy's lap, which am I the only one that read that part where he, you know, is hanging onto the lip of the landing bay door. And I mean, we read that the Sovereign and her crew rushed onto the shuttle, literally like they rushed on. And the minute their feet were off that ramp, it took off, right? Mm -hmm. So how was he so surprised that they were all still in the landing bay? Kind I'm not sure what Darrow's math on that was, but it was <laughs> definitely wrong. Like because how long does it take a landing bay door to close? Well, the other thing is that regardless of all of this, he's so full of adrenaline that time's slower. It's the exact opposite of what he should have thought. Darrow, sweetheart. Magical just, boy Darrow. Yeah, he just gets such Darrow. tunnel vision, you know? Mm -hmm. I feel like he gets such tunnel vision and he lets it cloud his judgment in so many ways. Like, what the hell did he think he was going to do with Aja and the other coterie of... I feel like he just starts making mistakes, which is, I mean, it's pretty par for the course for Darrow, so... Mm -hmm. I was going to say, bold of you to presume he thought, actually. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> bold of you to presume Darrow has, like... I don't know, obviously he thinks, but he's, he doesn't think before he acts, really. Mm -hmm. And in this instance, it was like, dude, come on, where did you really think they were going to go that quickly? I, I mean, it's neither here nor there. It's just me being a little bit picky. Like, I love these books so much that I have to find little things to pick on. For and sure. so I'm picking on that. Now, everything that happens next is super fast. He has the grenade, the sovereign orders the pilot to roll. There's a barrel roll. How did Darrow not hold on like a little tighter to that grenade? I don't mm. know. Like, I, I just. And, and also, what does that say about Octavia that, like, how quick her like mental powers work mm. that she's able to be like, roll? And then Darrow's smashing against the ceiling like it's in a cartoon, you know? Like, that's huge. She's got to be just outrageously she's a roadrunner and he's wily e. coyote <laughs> yeah basically <laughs> the, the grenade says acme on it and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man so he loses his grenade right away i mean and also okay fine plot convenience i get it but yeah, of course the exact opposite of a moment of silence let's cheer for the death of fucking carnas uh, of fuck Bologna. 
Jeez. I'm gonna be honest. After the reveal in the last section, where or if it was the section before, like when he's talking to Lauren and Lauren tells you like what Nero did to like his first wife and why the Bolognas hate him, I'm mm-hmm. like, all right, like the Bolognas are correct here, but like Carnus sucks. Yeah, Carnus isn't jackass. They are correct in hating Nero specifically, right? But it's very much like a sins of our fathers thing. Mm -hmm. What happened between Carnus and Claudius, the older Augustus son that he killed, was... I mean, that was just over the top. Carnus is a huge asshole, is what I'm saying. Like, it it is very much a sins of our fathers thing. Like, they all just need to get over themselves a little bit. So Nero sucks. It's, it's, again, it's the blood begets blood begets blood begets blood. Sometimes people just need to take a step back and grow up a little bit. Not be so obsessed with their families and their I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, this isn't Shakespeare, man. I just... And that's exactly what it reminds me of is Shakespeare. I, mm-hmm. I think you're spot on with that. Uh, and I mean, just because Nero's a son of a bitch doesn't mean that. Carnus talks about how Julian was like a weakling and mm-hmm. all this. It's like, dude, just because Nero was a dick doesn't mean you have to hate your own family also. Like, that makes you kind of a piece of shit. And listen, I the thing is, they're, they're all so obsessed with the honor of society mm-hmm. and everything that it's absolutely... That's absolutely a big part of why for sure they continue these feuds the way they do. But uh, I don't know, man. It probably doesn't help that Augustus, you know, half of his remaining children, the jackal, are complete assholes. The jackal. (laughs) 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 Sorry. Just I enjoyed the phrasing on that immensely. That was good. So he kills Carnus. Bye forever, bitch. And then the sovereign repeats her demand that Fitchner, because, you know, again, yes, Fitchner is present because he's the rage knight, ugh, whatever, bring her Darrow's head. And Darrow's severely injured because Carnus did actually get a good uh, swipe in on him. Mm-hmm. Darrow's uh, spin and flip and stab thing wasn't as fast as it should have been, which, again, he trained with Lorne. What? I don't know. I, he was injured, so let's just... Fine, whatever. Darrow's even worse injured than he was, and he was already injured, and he thinks he's going to die. He's just kind of laying there bleeding out, basically. And Mm -hmm. Uh, Don't forget, he's bleeding out and angsting about it. He is very explicitly bleeding out and angsting. Yeah, he's thinking about waking beside Eo in the veil, waking to love and knowing that in the world before I did my best. And, you know, he also thinks he's going to miss Mustang, which I feel like you should be thinking about Mustang a little more than Eo right now, but okay, whatever. And when Fitchner approaches him, and for a moment there, Darrow thinks it's his uncle Narrow, who, you know, mm-hmm. despite Darrow's complaints about Narrow, was Darrow's main father figure for most of his life. A little bit of tear there. And Darrow, thinking Fishner is narrow, says, I'm glad it's you. Tell Mustang, Eo, I love them. Now, I have a question. Do we think he just meant, I'm glad it's you who is executing me? Like, I'm glad it is you, Fishner, who is executing me? Or do you do we think he meant, I'm glad it's you, not narrow? I don't think it was that. I think it was a, I'm glad you're the one here at the end type of deal. Okay. Like, a, you can convey my last wishes because you know the relevant people. Or like the, we have enough trust that I can believe that you'll convey my last wishes type of vibes. Do they though? Because like Fitchner, he tried a little bit, a little bit (laughs) in the first book. But then in this book, 
he's really kind of been a total ass. So that's kind of where Darrow's saying, I'm glad it's you. Now I get it. Fitchner can make sure that Mustang receives these last words. And I think you're right in that Fitchner would certainly, and Darrow knows he would certainly go to Mustang and say, hey, Darrow's dead, had to kill him. These were his last words or whatever. But the whole thing just, it seems odd to me because throughout particularly Golden Sun, Fitchner, while he was helpful in the first book, he wasn't insanely overly helpful. And in this book, he has literally worked against Darrow at every turn. He hasn't maybe tried super hard. I took it as a, in a room full of terrible options, I'm glad it's you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like, I wasn't reading into, into it that much, to be honest, because I was like, the logic kind of goes out the window in moments of death. So I think expecting a lot of, like, clarity there isn't really it. And in my mind, what I saw was, like, Fitchner was, like, the first person who chose him as a gold. So I guess it was, like, a in his mind, it was, like, an open and close to this chapter, maybe something like that. But I very much read it as a, in a room of shitty options where everybody hates me, I'm glad it's at least somebody who doesn't hate me. Yeah, glad it's not Aja and glad it's not some random Speaking of Fitchner, in response to Darrow, you know, being like, oh, I'm going to die. These are my last words. Fitchner shakes his head and he says very specifically, you bloody damn fool. I had it under control. And Darrow's like, wait a second. Sherlock Holmes moment. Something's not right. Pulls out the notepad. Wait a second. Puts on a tartan cape. (laughs) Something. The game is afoot. (laughs) It's not a great comparison, but I'm still going to laugh about it. Fitchner at that point reveals, it's me. It's always been me, boyo. Because holy shit, Fitchner is Ares, and he mm-hmm. rescues Darrow and Lulz. He howls like a wolf as he jumps from the shuttle, which is like, oh, like son, like father. But Nami and I were actually, we briefly discussed this earlier today, because Nami just finished listening to the book earlier. And I said something about how the great part about this is that you get the shock of the reveal that Fitchner is Ares combined with the emotional impact of how it was done where Darrow thinks he's dying and Fitchner just kind of bends over and is like, it's me, man. It's always been me. And then there's that little like moment when he throws a grenade and jumps out of the shuttle with Darrow in, in his arms and he's howling like a wolf, which, you know, yes, House Mars, but really he's doing it because howlers. My other thing was, so I literally like, I listened to this, what, 10 hours ago, something like that. Darrow's like, oh my God, he's Aries. And I'm like, wait, what? How did he get that? And I like immediately rewound it. I'm like, oh shit, he said bloody damn. He said bloody damn. And I personally went slightly bloody damn feral (laughs) the other thing is that like i had actually spoiled this for myself but like the reveal was still just so on point and like so impactful despite me knowing this already like tara said the rereadability value was high because once i finished the book today i'm not saying i went back and re-listened to that section but i did indeed do that (laughs) uh yeah Just shock of the reveal combined with the emotional impact is just so, 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 so good. (laughs) And with that revelation, we move on to some downtime. Well, sort of in chapters 43 through 46. Darrow is in hell of a rough shape after the whole Iron Rain EMP race through the city, getting attacked by Karna stuff. So he sleeps for like a week 
But when he wakes up, it is Mustang in bed with him. So he's got that going for him, at least. Ever the Politico, Mustang immediately fills him in on all the things, including the fact that Roke captured more than 80% of the Bologna fleet. The Jackal's media is questioning Roke's loyalty to Darrow. Several has been hanging out with Fishner a bunch, and Lorne and Victor are all buddy-buddy now. Their conversation has some serious undertones, and while at first Darrow is trying to keep things light, soon he starts thinking about how he might never have seen Mustang again, which leads to him sobbing in her arms, which leads to him finally letting go of his restraint and them actually having the sex, y'all. Again, <laughs> we guess, maybe, probably. Okay, anyway, moving on. It seems the Jackal's pundits might be right about Rogue, because while Darrow tries to apologize for, like, all the things, the poet doesn't seem overly interested in hearing him out. And Darrow ends up not even having the time to press things because Sebro interrupts them, pulling Darrow away to reveal that the Jackal has captured Harmony, Evie, and Mickey. Big row moment for sure. This leads to Darrow paying the Jackal a visit under the guise of bringing gifts to him and Victra, who for some reason is hanging out with the Jackal in his new digs. But of course, Darrow's visit also allows him to sneak Severo and some sons into the Jackal's stronghold so that they can recover his prisoners. The plan goes off without a hitch, and then Daryl finally gets to spend a little bit of time with the people who made him what he is, perhaps more literally than figuratively, but maybe that's just besides the point. He finally reunited with Dancer, who, as a reminder, is totes not dead like Harmony said he was, grr, Harmony, and even gets to see Mickey again. Mickey, who is not in the best of shape after the Jackal's torture, is super emotional and grateful that Daryl saved him. But most importantly is that finally... Finally, Darrow gets to have another conversation with Ares himself. And now that he knows Ares is Fitchner, Fitchner is Ares and all. But how and why did this come about? Well, it turns out that the TLDR is that Fitchner fell in love with a red, uh, fell in love with a red woman, married her. She was carved so that she could have a kid, that being Severo, which means Severo is half red. Color us not super surprised, really. Unfortunately, because this is Red Rising and we can't have nice things, Fishner and his wife Bryn were found out. And while Fishner and Severo were away from their home, their home was raided and Bryn was captured and then killed for her so-called crimes of loving a gold and getting carved and giving birth to a half-breed or whatever gross words they used to describe the child of two colors. So Fishner started working against the society and has been doing so ever since. And now he has tried to put Darrow in place to, well, uh, inherit the whole dang empire? TLDR plan is get Darrow adopted by Nero, get Nero on a throne, about a year in, kill Nero, put Darrow on throne. This isn't an idea Darrow is in love with, but he also doesn't like that he has to continue to hide who and what he really is. He kind of has to agree that the plan as is, at least for now, but first he has this one thing. He wants to visit Lycos to see his family, but the real kicker? He is going to take Mustang with him to tell her his secrets. Dun, dun, dun. So Darrow wakes up from his rescue in a seaside home with Mustang by his side. And she brings him up to date on where everyone else is, as we said. The funny part about this is that when Mustang mentions that Severo's been hanging out with Fitchner a lot, she's like surprised about it because she thought Severo hated Fitchner and Daryl's like well yeah he does and she asks what changed and he just shrugs 
But he's also wondering how long Severo knew that Fitchner was Aries because it seems impossible that Severo was as blind as Darrow was. So <laughs> Darrow is wondering if someone lied to him for a change. But I don't know. Because to this point, or at this point in the story, we don't know that there was any way Severo knew. Again, he might have had something revealed to him in the messages that were sent, but Severo never said anything to Darrow. And to be honest, I don't know that Severo has the capability to be that, like, uh, I don't want to say dishonest because it's not really dishonest. I, I don't know that Severo he has is. the ability to keep that from Darrow of all people. I don't believe it either. I think my whole thing with this sequence was I feel like if Severo had known earlier, he would have spent this time with Fitchner earlier. Yeah, I feel like if if Severo knew earlier that I feel like he grew so close with Darrow so quickly, and then you know over the year, a couple years that they were together, I feel like his relationship with Darrow grew so quickly that if he knew, I feel like Darrow would have known. Yeah, I also think for me, the other thing really is that Severo is obviously like very smart. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gotten in, even though he was got in as like a fodder slash average person. Mm -hmm. But Sever is clearly a capable person, but he hasn't shown himself to really be a deceptive person at Darrow. And it doesn't make sense in what we know of his character and what we know of him and his relationship to his dad. If he found out this big thing about his dad, I feel like his biggest thing would be to commiserate with his best friend who he already knows would be loyal to something about his dad because he knows where the rest. It doesn't fully track with me. Yeah, I think it's more just Darrow being like, oh no, is someone lying to me? Like, but also, I, I don't even know if he feels that way. It was, it's more like a pensive, like, hmm. If anything, he seemed more proud. Yeah. But it was also kind of funny because he was thinking like Darrow when he should have been thinking like Severo. Yeah. Because on a yeah. list of people who would lie, it's like not Severo. Like Severo doesn't have the patience for that shit. Yeah. He's too busy watching unicorn porn, okay? <laughs> He's got important things to do. So among among other things, we learn that Lorne has gone off with Victra. And I did find this funny enough to just make a quick mention of it. Mustang refers to Victra as that harpy, which seriously, how dare. <laughs> and when Darrow asks what's wrong with Victra, Mustang replies, aside from the fact that she flirts with everything that moves, nothing. And Darrow latches onto this and asks if Victra flirts with her. <laughs> and Mustang is like, mm, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Well, I need you to understand that it wasn't just Dora who latched onto that. It was also me who latched yeah. onto it. And now I ship it. And sorry, Darrow. Supposedly Augustus, by the way, is making talk of giving the reformers a chance at the table. And Mustang is kind of excited and hopeful about that. So keep that in your back pockets for later. But really, like in the end, the conversation turns to Cassius and his father, brothers and sisters are all reported dead. Cassius and his mother, the only ones who might still be alive, are missing. And Darrow is kind of like, hmm, am I worried about Cassius? And Mustang is really upfront about this. She just said, He's our enemy. His welfare isn't my concern, which is interesting that Darrow, of all people, who is the person that Cassius was in a feud with, is super worried about life. And Mustang's just like, yeah, fuck him. I feel like Darrow's also a little bit of a, a fixer, like a friend collector. Like, I need to fix you. You, I can forgive you. You can be, you can be part of the gang again. You know, he doesn't like to let go a bit. Yeah. 
Yes. And we've seen that from Darrow a hundred percent, but honestly, like Mustang's kind of just shortness, rudeness, whatever yeah. was, was a little bit like, it was harsh, honestly, yeah. for somebody who was sleeping with him for a while. Betraying her to murder her whole family thing, maybe yeah. colored that relationship. Mm. Honestly, I would hazard a guess that Cassius wasn't told what was going to happen there. I'm saying I'm hazarding a guess, right? I don't know, but it would not shock me if Cassius was either told nothing or told like a much lesser version of what they planned to happen because he is not his mother. He is not Carnus. To be honest, his, his father isn't really. That was one of the people I pointed out when we covered part two that he was like, trying to hold his family back. Like, you can't do this now. You can't do this here. Not like this. So I would guess that Cassius didn't know the full extent of what was planned. But that said, Darrow is like, meh. Hate is what made Cassius's family throw themselves against Augustus's. And look what that brought him. I pity him, you know, wherever he is. Then we move on to Darrow trying to apologize to Roke again. Again. <laughs> it's so frustrating the Darrow-Roke angle because he's just like i said before he's a fixer he's a collector of friends and he just he wants them to be bffs again and roke is the same roke that severo mentioned when when darrow told him that he was a red that said you know roke and thistle they're in love with gold they're yeah. too in love with gold gold society so yeah and i think darrow recognizes that too but in the end Roke was the person who he spent the most time with at the Institute other than Cassius. But the mm -hmm. thing is, Roke never turned on him because it wasn't Roke's brother that he killed. But here's the other thing. I don't know that Darrow ever really accepts that. Because I think Darrow has a very rose-colored glasses view of Roke. Because this whole time, every single time Roke did something, I was like, ew, Roke. But Darrow's <laughs> always been like, the poet, my lovely brother. And I'm like, this guy's a shithead. I was telling Tara earlier today that like there were a few sections where he said like some fucked up stuff about like low colors. And I was just like, dude, like this dude's really fucked up. This dude's really fucked up. And then Severo comes in and he's like, yeah, Thistle and Roke, they wouldn't be okay with the fact that you're a red. And I'm like, confirmed. This whole time I have been very anti-Roke because it's like, yeah, he's the poet, but he's like the murder poet who like laughs at the poor. Yeah, he'll give them a coin and he won't kick them directly, but he'll also be like, oh, but they're probably poor because they deserve it. That's Roke. That is kind of Roke. <laughs> I do think that Darrow has, uh, when straight dudes are in love with their dude friends. I feel like bromance isn't even the right term Whoa, because bromances okay. are generally healthy and this is not. It's sitting in a hot tub but six feet apart because it's not gay. <laughs> Regardless, Darrow has this like obsession with Roke. And it was really only at Mustang's urging earlier that he went to Severo instead of Roke after Quinn died, which Mustang was right, as always. At this point, you know, Darrow tries to apologize. And he's like, oh, I, I kept Roke at arm's length since the Academy. I've taken him for granted. I shouldn't have done that. Roke has always been so kind to me. Roke says to Darrow, I didn't mind that it was always about you, Darrow. That was what burned Tactus, but not me. I'm not in love with you like Mustang. Yeah, bullshit. I don't worship you like Severo or the Howlers. I was a true friend. I was someone who saw your light and your dark and accepted both without judgment, without agenda. And what did you do to me? You used me like a man uses a horse. I'm better than that. 
Quinn was better than that. Which, like, I call bullshit because Darrow didn't use Quinn. Quinn was off doing her own thing and was pulled back to Luna by Mustang. So, just saying, Roke. Maybe don't project so much. I'm pretty sure that Roke is projecting the death of Leah onto Quinn as well. Leah was also not Darrow's fault. Antonia being fucked up can't be blamed on Darrow. Ugh, I don't like Roke! Yeah, he's kind of a he's kind of a fucker a little bit. Roke reads to me like one of those people who is a former friend, but like then they friend break up with you and they come back with, oh no, but you've always mistreated me and you're so mean. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, I'm gonna be honest, Darrow has not been a good friend to him, but Roke is not a good person. Roke can go in the same bucket where I put Cassius and then they can be buried in the sea. Actually, no, I would tie rocks around Roke's ankle and I wouldn't do that for Cassius <laughs> because I feel like Cassius at least wouldn't kick poor people and I don't know that Roke wouldn't. Cassius wouldn't kick poor people because Cassius would think that he's a prince and he's better than that. Roke would kick poor people because he's like, they deserve to be poor. This is the distinction between the two. Thank you. It's funny, though, Nami, that you mentioned the, the friend breakup thing and where, you know, yes, sure, probably somebody was an asshole and that's why the friendship is breaking up. But then, like, it turns into, like, the other person going around being like, they were the worst. You were the worst. I hate you so much. In this moment, Darrow asks Roke if he is better than their friendship. And Roke just says, I think I'm better than you. He qualifies it that he would have traded places with his friends who suffered and or died, but it's clear that he doesn't believe Darrow would have done the same. And I mean, he's right. Darrow says, oh, I I would give my life to bring them back. But this is a lie because as much as he loves these gold friends of his, he has greater responsibilities. And until the rebellion is over, his life is not his to give. But also without the qualifiers, Darrow, Roke, are you better than our friendship? Roke, I'm better than you. It's just very... It feels like a line out of Mean Girls. Like, it feels like something Regina George would say. And when you're saying things that I feel like Regina George would say, I can't really call you a good person. Well, whatever. Severo interrupts them. And even though Darrow does try to say, Roke is like, just go. And again, he's got it right. Friendships take minutes to make, moments to break, years to repair. And he's like, oh, we'll talk again soon. I'm sure you will. But Severo did have good reason to interrupt because, oh no, the Jackal has captured some of Darrow's Sons of Ares friends. And there's like, it literally just goes from Severo telling him this to the rescue happening. Heist, heist. Yeah, it's like heist adjacent because Darrow goes in there with the excuse of bringing gifts to Victra and the Jackal. We don't find out what Darrow brought for the Jackal, but oh my gosh, we do find out what he brought Victra, which is a crystal bottle containing essence of petrichor, which is the smell of stone before rain. I will forever love Darrow for giving her such a meaningful gift. Like I have never been a big gesture gift person. I've never been a pricey gift person. Give me something that is meaningful to us and our relationship. I'm not saying I don't love it when people give me a really cool gift. It's cool, right? But I will forever be the person that will love like somebody printing out a photo of us in a frame that somehow is like also synonymous with whatever's happening in the photo type of thing. And I love stuff like that. And this is just very much Victor and Darrow's friendship in this book 
uh, the way it evolved has just been so lovely. It's so good. I, I love every second of it. It's deeper. I mean, for Victra, mm-hmm. who uh, is a Julii, who, you know, has all the money in the world and ships and her family's shitty, but they're wealthy. And what do you get her? You get her a bottle of Petrichor, which is just, uh, it's awesome. Yeah. He's probably the only one she's ever told that. Yeah. Anyway, so the rescue seems to go off without a hitch. Can we pause here for a second, though? I didn't know what was going to happen at the end of this book was going to happen. I suspected <laughs> the jackal was going to do something, but I never suspected that the jackal would find out about Darrow being a red. And I think this moment, this rescue here, I think is when Darrow really fucks up. Because, like, despite the fact that he says he had a plan to, like, cover his tracks and, like, somebody else to frame things on and that they took her dead body, there's just so much suspicious nonsense that happens in this scene that I'm like, Darrow, this wasn't a good plan. Darrow, you put the cart before the horse here and overreacted because your allies were in danger. And admittedly, they were in a lot of danger, but, like, this wasn't it. And I maintain that this was where Darrow fucked up and it comes back to bite him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in this particular case, he would have been better off taking a page of being true to what Roke thinks of him. It's incredibly suspect. It's like, did we have a roundtable meeting before this? Like, was everybody okay with this? Did we really think that this, like, crazy above average intelligent, I mean, after all the stories Mustang tells of the Jackal, after all that, you think that, like, he's not yeah, going to know. Like, if he had pulled this with, like, anybody else, and, like, I really do mean that. I think to some extent he could have pulled something similar to this, maybe with Nero, even. Mm-hmm. But I just think the Jackal is too unhinged in the way that he thinks. And I think the Jackal is the type of person that connects dots where dots would not normally even exist for other people. Like, Nero would never fathom that somebody would carve a red into a gold. But the Jackal's like, what's the most fucked up shit that would make this dude this fucked up? Because nobody's (laughs) as fucked as me. And that was a lot of fucks and it stops feeling like a real word at this point. But... Severo says that scene and then they're going there and I'm like, Darrow, Darrow, this is it. Whatever the Jackal's going to do to betray you, I know he's going to get ammo from this moment. I agree, but I think we're supposed to understand that. I think there were other things that the Jackal noticed throughout all the things, but I think this is the, I don't even know if I want to call it the aha moment. It's more like the, oh, that last box is checked. The rescue seems to go off without a hitch, despite the fact that Darrow is totally wrong about that. And Darrow now has Evie and Mickey back. He gets all the people that are still in the Jackal's position back. And Darrow finally gets to talk to Dancer again. And obviously Darrow knows at this point that Ares is a gold. And he asks Dancer if it bothers him that Ares is a gold. And Dancer is like, doesn't bother him that we're reds. Ares would die for the cause. He started it. Do you know why he did? And Darrow doesn't know why he did, but it's Fitchner's story to tell. We get to that in a little bit, but I wanted to touch a little bit on Mickey because when he hobbles in and kisses Darrow and then weeps like a child and is just like, thank you, thank you, thank you a dozen times. And he says he wanted to warn Darrow what was really going on with Harmony back on Luna. And Darrow's like, I would have believed you. And Mickey's like, I know, I I knew you would come for me. You're my darling boy. You were too kind to forget about me. But Harmony at that time was like, fuck you, Mickey, you're a slaver. And Mickey admits she was right. I am. 
I am wicked. I hurt the girls and boys. I sold them even when I loved them. Of course she was right. Why would you come? Why would you do anything for wicked little Mickey? And this is just such a fucking Darrow moment. It's both beautiful and like sad and like frustrating, right? Because Darrow says, because you're my friend, weird as you are, wicked as you were, I know you want to be better. You want to live for more. We all do. And there's not a place they could take one of my friends that I would ever abandon them. So cute. Oh, Mickey was real bad. That's a nice sentiment, <laughs> but like, was Mickey ever your friend, bud? Like, I'm confused what you think friends are. Like, I just have a lot of concern for Darrow's definition of friendship, honestly. Mickey essentially made him a, a superhero. I mean, it's yeah. Just... yeah, but like, Mickey was never a good person. Mickey Those was good to be... Darrow. Exactly. Darrow yeah. also understands he was bad to other people, like Evie. Exactly. I always go back to my people should be allowed to change idea because I do think that Mickey fucked up in his past. And I think that being with Darrow and doing what he did with Darrow was actually probably the impetus for him wanting to change. He helped Darrow, right? And then so soon after that was kind of kidnapped by Harmony, who didn't like how things were going, that he never really got a chance to get from what he was doing to what he wanted to actually be. And listen, the sins of the past are not immediately forgiven or always forgiven, right? They aren't. I understand that. But I do think that in this moment, Darrow, while he maybe doesn't have the whole idea of it right, I do think that he was right to forgive Mickey and to say, like, I would have saved you no matter what. Uh, yeah, I agree. I super agree that this was like a really good moment because like Mickey was absolutely shit. And like this moment, like and Mickey's like regret and his willingness to change is like very much there and genuine. And I do believe in second chances. And I always believe when people fuck up and try to do better. I just think that Darrow's reasoning behind why Mickey deserves a chance is suspect. It's not just your friends who deserve second chances. It's not just the people you know well. Like, everyone is allowed to change and get better. And, like, your personal feelings on them when they change is your own. But, like, everyone can and should try to get better. And depending on who the audience is, anyone can be redeemed. And I say depending on who the audience is, because that's the caveat. Some things are unforgivable to certain people and that will always be the case. But I think Darrow being like, because you're my friend, you are one of the people who is allowed to change is suspect. And I also think the Mickey is my friend reasoning is also suspect. Like, mm -hmm. Darrow, sweetheart, again, do you understand what friends are? Because... The dude who puts you through concerningly painful surgery to then take over the world. I know I call most of my acquaintances friends, but I don't know that I'd call that dude my friend. <laughs> just, just saying. Fitchner does kind of scoff about Darrow's reunion with Mickey being emotional, but Darrow thinks that this is the man he'd rather be. He doesn't want to constantly be on his guard or lying through his teeth, and he didn't really understand how much affection he felt for Mickey until just now. Not because Mickey helped make him, but because Mickey always loved him so much. And he calls it a strange but real love. And Darrow does believe that Mickey wants to be a man Darrow would respect, just as Darrow wants to be a man EO and Mustang would respect. And that that is the good sort of love. I hope Darrow's right in that, that 
the time Mickey spent with him changed Mickey because he wanted to be the type of person Darrow would respect. That said, we finally get to Fitcher's backstory. And I don't want to get into this too much because we are eventually going to cover the Sons of Ares graphic novels and those go wicked into depth about this. But the TLDR is that, as it turns out, as we said in the summer, he fell in love with a red. They went to a carver so they could have a baby. And that's how we got several. Aww. So, yes, yeah, Severo is half red. You know, once you know it, it's not really surprising. I well, guess. Yeah, because they said he was so small compared to other golds. Ah, I mean, it wasn't just the small stuff. I mean, I know he didn't know his mom. He was raised by Fitchner and everything. But I still feel like there's, other than the height and the, maybe the scrawniness, I think that, I don't know. It was one of those things where when it happened, I was like, oh, oh, yes, of course he is. I think the reason that I was kind of like, oh, this tracks is because in my head, I'd always sort of put Severo in the same place as I put Darrow because they were both like the outcasts. And like, Mm -hmm. even though Darrow like immediately becomes part of the leadership, he's definitely the outcast within them. And I'm like, ah, yes. And then Severo's the actual outcast outcast and they are the same. And then it was like, and Severo's are half red. And I'm like, see, told you they were the same. (laughs) My brain makes weird connections. Are the connections there? Probably not. Brain has created them. Regardless what happened to Fitcher's wife and Severo's mom, her name is Bryn, by the way, they gassed her, put her in an oven, pumped her ash into the sea. They didn't give her a name, just a number, not because she was a thief or a murderer or had violated any man's or woman's rights, but because she was a red who dared love gold. And so she was killed, but the powers that be don't think of it that way. They think of her as a statistic. Like she never existed. And Fitchner says, that's what society does. Spread the blame so there is no villain. So it's futile to even begin to find a villain or to find justice. It's just machinery and processes. And it rumbles on inexorable till a whole generation rises that will throw themselves on the gears. And what happened is what caused Fitchner to start working against society. But he brought in Darrow and wanted him to be carved into a gold because he knew that a true gold could not lead the rebellion. It had to be from the bottom up. And very specifically, red is about family. More than any other color, it is about love amid all the horror of our world. If red rises, they have a chance to bind the worlds together. And I mean, I I honestly think that tracks with Darrow's just collecting friends obsession as steve has pointed out (laughs) not only is darrow a magical girl darrow is very specifically sailor moon except for (laughs) sailor mars damn it oh my god (laughs) apparently the end result as nami mentioned in the summary is that Fitchner wants Darrow to inherit the empire and the entire society, which Darrow doesn't really want, but for the moment he like reluctantly agrees because he wants something in return. He doesn't want to be in the dark anymore. He wants communication and plans and no more gray areas. And he also wants to go home to visit Lycos and see his family. And he wants to bring Mustang with him, at which Fitchner has a shit fit. I mean, not literally, but he does say shit a lot. And Darrow is like, she loves me. I won't use her anymore. I won't leverage her. If I can't trust her, gold can't change. And Titus and Harmony were right. Hell, the society is right. You and I know that it's not about our color. It's about our hearts. Now let's put that to the test. And now it's time for Darrow and us readers as well, I guess, to face the music, such as it is, in chapters 47 through 51. 
So, true to his word, Darrow makes his way to Lycos, where his arrival surprises and probably kind of scares the poo out of those who are in charge of the mine. First things first, Darrow demands that Ugly Dan, the very gray who used to terrorize him, bring him to the bubble garden. Only now that Darrow has actually been places and seen things, the garden seems a sad, paltry place. He knows that Eo, like the garden, also wasn't as perfect as mere memory allows for, but before he can move on, he has just a couple more things to do. Mind Magistrate Tiffany Sue Poginus is waiting for Darrow when he exits the garden with a fancy cheese spread and a whole lot of fawning. Darrow realizes that, like Ugly Dan, Poginus was uh, way more than a little bit built up in his mind and in reality is just a gritty small man. Of course, Darrow has a viable excuse for visiting Lycos, and he quickly gets to the point, or rather has Ragnar do so, reading from the data pad that he was very recently and very quickly trained to use. Turns out Lycos has had a 14% decrease in production in recent months, and Poginus scrambles to make excuses and then to insist that he's been doing everything possible to increase production. Side note, of course their attempts to increase production include things like severe and honestly mostly random punishments, increasing alcohol rations, pumping pheromones into the air so that they breathe like rabbits, and having the favored gammas tamper with the other clan's machines and maps. But here comes, I always need to see the best in people, Darrow again, actually wondering whether Poginus in fact cares about the Reds who work in this mine. Big. Damn. Sigh. So instead of firing Poginus, quarantining, aka moving the unruly Reds to a more compliant mine, and making Lycos unlivable, Darrow insists that they throw the Reds a feast with the food and libations he has on his ship a feast that Darrow watches from above because as a gold, of course, there's no way he could be part of it without making it, you know, super awk for people who are supposed to be having a good time. While he is watching from above, Mustang arrives, and even though she begins by teasing Darrow over being so mean to Grays, she quickly turns the conversation to how disgusting she finds the mine, and not just because it looks gross, because Poginus is reselling the supplies for the Reds for pocket change, and even then, they have more than enough food in storage, but the population remains malnourished. Still, she doesn't quite understand why they are there. At first, Darrow simply tells her that it's the mine where the girl sang the forbidden song, and then he asks her to go on a walk with him. And let's be real, it's not going to be a romantic one, not in a place like this. He leads her down to Lycos and through the township where he grew up, and he's actually afraid. Mustang isn't stupid after all, and even before he can reveal anything to her, she's asking him how he knows where he's going. But rather than act like a real person for once and actually speak the words, Darrow hands her a holocube, kisses her, and leaves her behind as he enters his childhood home. It's late at night, and the household is asleep except for his mother, Deanna, who comes into the room, stops, stares at him for a moment, but of course she knows who it is despite the carving that made him a gold because Darrow is her son. And listen, we're not crying, you're crying. Okay, yeah, we're totally crying. To be fair, to be fair... Uncle Neryl had apparently told Deanna that Darrow was alive, but not about the carving. The mention of Uncle Neryl brings them around to family news, which includes the reveal that Neryl is quote-unquote dead, as in he supposedly fell down a mineshaft, but there was no body, so Deanna doesn't really believe he's well and truly dead dead. 
Daryl also finds out that his sister Leanna married a Gamma, and that his brother Karen's wife died, and Karen ended up remarried to Ao's sister Dio. Okay, that's a lot. Pause for a breath. Darrow tries to explain the whole break the chains plan to his mother, but she's kind of side-eyeing him because to be told, like, what does happen if he takes down the society and the Reds are let out of slavery? Thankfully, Darrow knows better than to assume that he knows better. <laughs> the women are the strong ones, truly, and also he understands that it will take a whole metric fuck ton of brilliant minds to figure out how to set things right in the end. Too soon, though, he has to leave his mother, not just because one of his nieces comes downstairs and he can't be seen by everyone else, but because he knew that Mustang left after viewing the holocube. Or did she? Okay, she did it. Though she did trick Severo into thinking she had, and she's right behind him, isn't she? Yes. Yes, she is. And she is not happy. In fact, she has a gun trained on Darrow throughout her line of questioning. And even though he answers everything she puts forward, it definitely seems to be touch and go throughout their conversation. And perhaps even more so when Ragnar shows up and threatens Mustang. Seriously, it's quite the standoff. But thankfully, Ragnar eventually stands down. He goes on in one of the most, like, unexpected epic speeches to explain that he earned 44 scars for the gold who enslaved him but never won for the family members he lost and that he intends to live for more but when darrow asks mustang what she lives for she merely turns and walks away granted we only find that out a little bit later when darrow recalls her exit as he rides his victory chariot in the triumph parade that rolls through Gia because she's not there and uh neither it's fitchner at the ceremony that follows the parade in which there's a whole lot of we're golds and we did this conquering thing and now darrow gets a laurel and here's a monument to how cool we are type stuff probably more important to darrow's bucket list though is what happens after slash in between the ceremony augustus leads darrow to the throne room because of course he does nero brings the drama to chastise him about letting obsidians hold razors <sighs> but also to tell Darrow that he wants to adopt him. Oh, and Augustus also wants him to marry Mustang, but uh, for now we'll focus on the adoption thing. Apparently the Jackal isn't just okay with it. It was his idea? Weird flex, but uh, okay. And if this wasn't the biggest red flag in our relationship with the Jackal, I don't know what was. Darrow agrees to the whole adoption thing, because really what choice does he have right now? And then it's on to their exclusive little triumph celebration party. Weird, though, Fitcher still hasn't popped in. And Severo is actually worried about Daddy, not so dearest. So Darrow tells him to take Ragnar and go looking for Fitchner, which means they miss what happens next. Because while this party is supposed to be about Darrow receiving his triumph mask, instead he receives a stab in the back, or rather a prick in the wrist, from Roke. He falls to the ground paralyzed and watches as Vixus, Lilith, yeah, those assholes from the Institute, remove their pink flesh masks, and they, the Jackal, and others start straight up murdering everyone at the Triumph. And when we say everyone, we mean everyone. Men, women, children like Victor is shot down by her sister, Antonia the bitch. The incomparable Lorne Arcos is cut down by Lil and the Jackal. Seriously, what the fuck? And when Cassius, Aja, and others arrive to take Augustus prisoner, he gets rude with the Jackal, rightfully fucking so, considering the Jackal reveals that he orchestrated the favorite Augustus' son, Claudius's death, and earns himself a bullet to the brain. And then, as Darrow lies there paralyzed, having just witnessed so many of his friends and allies die, Roke shows him what's in the box, the Triumph Mask box, that is, and when Darrow sees its contents, he knows they are undone. Fitchner, Ares himself, has been caught and butchered, and so ends the Society Strikes Back. 
Going back to the prodigal son returning home, Darrow makes Ugly Dan, who he notes as lame, obedient, old, and ugly, lol, take him to the garden where he buried Eo, even though he knows they dug up her body and disposed of it elsewhere. He thinks the garden isn't as perfect as it was in memory, and neither was she. She was impatient. She could be spiteful for small reasons, but she was a girl, not even 17, and she gave the most she could, did the best she could with what she had. That's why I will always love her, and it is why I know whether or not she would give her blessing for what I go to do. My heart can't stay here in this cage she herself has fled. It must move on. I think Dara thinks about Eo way more than she would have thought about him if she were in his <laughs> position, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, not even that. I think Darrow has put Eo on such a high pedestal that he can't even reach her feet to pull her body and break her neck. Sorry, that that was a dark joke, but I stand by it. <laughs> so dark. But you're right. Even as he tells himself she had these flaws later when he's talking to his mother about her and Deanna is like, I never liked Eo and here's why. He's like, mm, her memory is different than real life. And I'm like, oh, was it though? <laughs> I was laughing at that mom scene actually though, because I was like, what a mom thing to say. Like, I hated your dead wife. Like, that. <laughs> way to go. Way to go. 11 out of 10. Next, Darrow is met by my magistrate, Timony Sue Poggetus, who also isn't looking too hot, or well, he's like the sweaty sort of hot, <laughs> but also otherwise looking icky. And Darrow, he's so focused on the fact that he remembers these people as like terrible, hideous monsters, but they aren't. They're just petty men who ruin the lives of those below them and he says they don't notice but i think yeah they do notice they don't care i think is the better yeah. but how does that not make the monsters <laughs> uh, <laughs> to me that's pretty monstrous yeah it is you're not wrong <laughs> but i think that darrow has now been so ensconced in gold society where he sees the true monsters. I think for him, it's easier to ignore the tinier hypocrisies from somebody who is already in the middle of the rung and just trying to survive when he has seen the hypocrisy at the top. To be honest, this very much speaks to me as a history major and some of the things I studied, particularly going to a school in the South, we focused on these things for obvious reasons that poor whites were taught to hate black people. And that's a very good comparison to what this is. It's that trickle down. They're also oppressed, but they're taking out their oppression on the wrong people. Mm -hmm. When you can see the manipulation at the top, it's... Yep more difficult to blame the people at the bottom or at the middle because even though they're carrying out that oppression they are carrying it out because of the oppression they've experienced themselves it makes it understandable but it doesn't make it excusable but i think this is like the true moment when like darrow sees that and he like sees how they struggle and like the weird things that they're going to don't get me wrong this copper dude is an absolute trash bag just mm -hmm. in general for the coppers like i don't think he's a good manager for this mine in any way shape or form because he's like skimming money and all this other illegal shit but also like he does seem to kind of care about the people 
3% in that he's like, no, don't destroy the mind. Like, we can fix it. We can fix it. Whether it comes from, like, a his inherent, like, selfishness of, like, oh, it's my responsibility to fix it so it'll look bad on me if I don't fix it. Or it's, like, a CEO of a company of workers where he's like, no, this is my thing to fix. It's mine. And he feels ownership to it, even. Like, there is some sort of, like, not sympathy, but responsibility there that I think Darrow's vibing with. And I think Darrow's equating that responsibility to sympathy, though. And I'm like, those aren't the same, but, like, I see what you mean it's scalability so like whereas he's used to seeing like the jackal and people that that just waste lives by the you know hundreds this guy is you know a small fish in that maybe it's that he cares about the people maybe it's that he cares about his setup where he's making whatever pocket change he can but he's the lesser of the two evils yes yeah exactly Darrow knows that Paginus has been stealing from Augustus and, you know, again, the magistrate blames it on the miners and Darrow threatens quarantine, AKA to shut down the mine. And it was meant to be a test. And Darrow wonders if he cares for them in some strange way. And that maybe Paginus is just another monster from Darrow's past made human by society's lash. Darrow's like, ah, it's fine. The mine is safe for now, but we're going to throw a feast. I brought all the things. Don't worry about it. You don't need to use your fancy weird cheese that you brought me that I refuse to eat. During the feast, Mustang does in fact show up and Darrow is like watching from above because again, if he went down there as a gold, they'd all just be like, we do now. You know, they're not going to enjoy themselves if he's there. So he has to stand above them knowing that he was once one of them. I imagine that's got to be hard. He wants to do the best for them, but all he can do is throw them a feast and watch them from above rather than be part of this thing that he used to enjoy. And Mustang shows up and she's confused. And then he's like, oh, you know, the feast is over. He says, follow me. And she gets kind of concerned as she realizes that he knows where he's going. He says, you know, you wanted me to let you in. How far do you want to go? And she claims all the way. Now, to be fair, Darrow gives her a hollow cue and tells her to watch it rather than just speaking the truth to her face because he's being a coward in this particular moment, honestly. We think that Darrow has figured out how to communicate with human beings. Some shit like this. Darrow, do you know how to people? No, Darrow does not know how to people. Like the first rule of like relationships is that you don't give them life-changing info over a text or by voice message. Like I'm pretty sure it's specifically the video of him being carved. It is. It is. Yeah. Like it's not even an explanation. It's here, watch this grotesque surgery with no context, and then be horrified because the end result is me. Why do we think he was such a coward? Because he's scared. That's literally it. Like, like he is basically pinning all of his hopes on Gold's being able to change onto her right now. And if she can't do it, first of all... No, the, that part I get. I understand that logic. But also, he's in love with her. I, I understand that logic. Like, all of that. But like, I don't see how giving a cube to someone of your carving is likely to be the best way to ease them into this. Daryl's not a smart man. Like, he's a smart man, but he's not a smart man. He's clever. 
exactly. Darrow's mm-hmm. clever. He's not good at interpersonal workspace relationships. Uh, I'm pretty sure if he didn't trip into getting a wife in the first place, none of this would have happened. Pretty sure Ao is like, oh, look at this lost puppy dog. I choose him. Oh, he can't talk to me well. I like him. I'm keeping him. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that being the case. That's my headcanon. Darrow knows how to give big, dramatic speeches to motivate people mm-hmm. and how to change the paradigm. Take a drink. Darrow can do. Darrow does not know how to talk to girls or mm-hmm. how to have emotional heart-to-hearts or how to communicate in a way that is reasonable. Because he is trying his best and it's not very good interpersonally. <laughs> TLDR is... I don't know that anybody reasonable would think this was a good idea. I think Darrow thought this was a good idea. And I think that is a very different... I don't even know if he actually thought it was a good idea so much as he was like, this is the thing I'm going to do because, like you said, Darrow is bad at peopling. Particularly with women. Actually, no. I say that particularly with women. He is bad at peopling with those who... Because he's been bad with Roke, too. He's bad at peopling with those that he claims to trust. Because he's so caught up in his fundamental betrayal of them that he doesn't even know where to start. And Severo made it easy for him. Yep. But he's aware that nobody else will. And then at the same time that he gives her this hollow cube, he's fucking tracking her. In a way to trust, bro. (laughs) You know? I think the extra funniest thing, though, is that that she's like, I knew you were tracking me, bitch. And I'm just like... Yeah, exactly. It's such a quintessentially Darrow move. Like, of course he was. Well, I think it was... I think that was Severo's idea more than... Yeah, it was on... It was because of Severo and and Ragnar, but, like, still, he agreed to it. Like... Uh, Well... Anyway, finally, it's family reunion time of a sort because he hands that holocube to Mustang and he's like, bye, just steps into this little house like (laughs) NBD, just going to walk into this Red's house. And his mother is awake as he kind of knew she probably would be. And mm, despite him being a golden looks, she knows who he really is and Darrow even notes that she doesn't seem terribly surprised to see him, which again, it turns out that Narrell told her that Daryl was alive, but not about the carving. Before Narrell died, quote unquote, no one has found his body again. So like Deanna doesn't really believe he's dead. And they play catch up and Daryl finds out all this stuff about his family, including that Kieran is married to his former sister-in-law. Again, just want to touch on his mother admitting that she never liked EO, at least not for Darrow, because Deanna says EO could be manipulative. And Darrow admits that he knows about Eo being pregnant when she died. And Deanna says, Eo was not a cruel girl. You know that. She loved you with everything she had. And I loved her for it. But I always feared she'd make you fight her battles. And I always feared how much she loved to fight. And that's the point where Darrow's like, that's not the Eo I remember. But it's like, I think your mother knew EO better than you did, Darrow. I was gonna say, can we talk about that like on point mom instinct? Because that was mm-hmm. EO in one. Like, what is Darrow doing now? He is literally in the process of doing exactly what his mother claims EO would make him do and be like, Mommy, that doesn't sound correct. And I'm like, Darrow, you idiot. Ah, oh, Darrow be dumb sometimes. Darrow be so dumb. All the time. Sailor Mars is just doing his best. Sailor Mars. (laughs) 
Darrow's mother isn't sure how this rebellion can or will really pan out once he says, you know, I'm going to break the chains. She's so smart. How can there be enough homes and or enough work for all of the miners above the surface? And she asks if he thinks about these things. And he does. Mm, I feel like that's a lie. (laughs) He doesn't have an answer because, you know, men. (laughs) She reminds him that even though hell divers like him think they provide for the clans, it's actually the women who do. And she's like, how the fuck do you think you're going to shape the world? I mean, she doesn't say fuck, but. You know that's what she's thinking of. Like, she said it without saying it, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's the implied mother, Lisa. (laughs) Now, that said, I actually believe Darrow when he says, like, I know I'm not the one with the answers. He does, in some respects, understand his limitations. He knows very well what his role is in this. And he knows that he is the sword. He knows that he is the sword and that he's the symbol and that he's the figurehead. That might be the smartest thing he's known this whole time. Good job, Darrow. You get one point, but also minus 10 for just everything else. (laughs) One person point. One person point. (laughs) One person point. I I love it, man. I I love this scene. I love that his, his mother, who is, you know, just this like slowly falling to bits, like red woman is so much further ahead in thinking in the plot that she barely even knows exists and darrow's just like basically like bull rushing into the son of a bitch like let's change the paradigm it's funny like she's such a quintessential mom in this scene in a way that like we don't know her because we didn't really see her that much in the first book yeah and like just all of this moment is just such a like you see why darrow is so smart because his mother is that Mm -hmm. smart like you really get that here the like parallels of her falling apart and being slow and decrepit due to her stroke and just like the way red bodies are designed to age quickly and be dead by 30 she is slowly falling apart in front of his eyes and despite that like she still got like the wisdom of his mother and just like from the moment where she immediately recognizes him and everything i was like this whole scene had me like tear it up and it was just me eating my lunch at work being like don't witness me oh gosh i was very emotional reading this and here's the thing i think that this once again speaks to the conversation that he had with Augustus previously where Augustus was like, yeah, I know that all these other colors can think these ways and do these things, but that's not the way it works. Her being so intelligent about what might happen or what needs to happen or could happen after he possibly breaks the chains. I don't think it's necessarily something he has never thought of, but it's something that immediately comes to her mind because as a mother, again, all she thinks about is my family, my people, where would we possibly go? What would we possibly do? This is all we know. Honestly, should not be surprising, I think, to us at this point that it's Darrow's mom who's like, mm, but what about the like actual logistics of the shit you're trying to pull? She's a smart lady. We like her. Now, as emotional and wonderful as Darrow's time with his mother was, Mustang never knocked on the door or whatever, or whatever he thought she was going to do. She left, or well, he thinks she left, and it turns out she's waiting in the shadows to confront him. 
scorcher in hand, <laughs> insisting that he answers her questions, and he does, and he does admit that Titus was also a red who had been carved. They weren't in league. He blames the golds for Titus being what he was. And I love Mustang a lot, but her claiming that she knows what the Reds go through, that she doesn't avert her eyes. She knows the policies and the conditions they suffer. And it's like, ah, girl, you're still like in the top 1% looking down. On like a much smaller level, Mustang at this moment reminds me of the type of person that I was in college. A person who had just started to pay attention and understood that she had privilege being upper middle class, but Mm -hmm. still not getting it Mm -hmm. and taking so much of that for granted without even knowing what I had yet to unlearn. And that's what Mustang is right there. She's a person who has opened her eyes and knows that there is an inconsistency and unfairness and she knows that there are things that need to be fixed, but she doesn't actually know the depth of the things she needs to unlearn and understand. Like, Listen, I love her because I know she wants to learn and wants to try. In this moment, though, it's like, goddamn, girl, Darrow is trying to tell you how things are. And she's just like, whatever. This is literally like if the kid in Slumdog Millionaire told his rich girlfriend that he was the Slumdog Millionaire. And she was like, yeah, I know that poor people exist. I've seen poor people. Like, it's real. That's what's happening right now. Yeah, yeah. And I love Mustang because she has taken that first step to be on this journey of empathy. But, like, she's like, yeah, but I took a step, bitch. I get it. And it's like, no, no, you don't. You took a step. You're doing better. But no, you don't. And for a moment, it actually seems like she might kill Darrow. But it turns out Ragnar stayed behind as well so like mustang is like if i don't pull the trigger millions will die but then there's ragnar if you pull the trigger you will die i don't know how to do his voice i don't think i can be loud enough but it's always in bold so i imagine it being very like bassy i i I hear like like i imagine bassy yeah i imagine the beat drops on every single word Yeah, probably. <laughs> like a DJ. <laughs> so now, now when they do, do the movie, we have to find some actor who will have a very loud harpy-like voice to completely disabuse you of the notion. That the no. Never. Harpy-like dubstep voice. <laughs> Hello, my name is Ragnar. I'm the dubstep harpy. <laughs> That's what but- like, confirmed. Darrow is like, no, Ragnar, don't do it. And Ragnar's like, you're not always right. And Mustang, for a moment, takes that as her reasoning. Darrow, look what you've done. You started this war, and it's beasts like him that will finish it and take their revenge. And Mustang, what the fuck are you talking about? Ragnar's been at y'all's side being good for a while, and now you're going to talk shit about him? I'm sorry, but this whole scene, I was very angry with Mustang. Especially because this is the exact moment where Mustang shows her hypocrisy, right? She claims to understand the struggle of what the Reds have gone through, but she also doesn't understand that the beast that Ragnar is is exactly what Gold has made him. 
just like the mind gymnastics that she's going through here and like again it's like she's taken that first step like she sorts of she sort of gets it but she's still missing every single point because it's not that beasts like ragnar are going to finish it it's people like ragnar who have been forced to become monsters because what if gold has done to them will be finishing this battle and frankly gold deserves to die that way she understands as in she's written a fucking paper on it you know yes mm -hmm. like, like that's the extent to which she understands there's this whole like countdown thing and when the countdown ends no one dies because ragnar goes over to darrow and kneels at his side and recites you know all the terrible things he's had to do for gold and the scars mm -hmm. he's earned along the way and now he lives for more and Darrow asks Mustang, what do you live for? Not in those exact words, paraphrase, but she doesn't kill them, but she does leave. And now it's time for Darrow's triumph. Yay. So this is a real quick, just like, uh, who the fuck cares? Like they have a big parade with chariots and roses and all the low colors lining the streets and watching and cheering them. But they also have the enemy's heads on pikes. That was pretty standard of Roman ancient Rome. Yes, the no, slaves no. behind you and all of the things that you've taken from the areas you conquered. Roman society, basically. It's pretty and it's ugly at the same time. And there's the parade and the obligatory speeches and nobody cares because, let's be real, it's all just a bunch of showmanship. What's important is that after all these things, Augustus asks Sarah to walk with him and... Darrow is worried that Mustang told her father what he is and that Augustus is about to kill him. And that never made sense to me at all, because otherwise, why would you have the triumph? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like a momentary, like, this didn't need to be here sort of worry. But instead, Augustus is just like, uh, why'd you give razor to the obsidian? Stop doing this shit, Darrow. Slap on the hand. And... I know that all of the colors can do these things, but order is paramount. And even though Darrow hates Augustus because the low colors never asked to bow to gold. Again, how is it that reds and browns toiling to death is for the greater good that pink children being harvested for rape and obsidians and grays for battle is necessary. How can Augustus alone know what is best for everyone, including Darrow and including his family? He still accepts the offer to become Augustus's adopted son because he knows he does not have a choice. Well, yeah. And it's also what Fitchner's plan is, right? Was for him to rise to society and take it over. But all of this is kind of, it's all just like the pomp and circumstance leading up to the holy shit moment mm -hmm. that this book ends with, which is the fact that their little triumph after party is a trap rigged by the jackal along with Roke of all people's help, which ugh. fucking Roke. For me, it was the it was the moment where they were like, "Oh, not only is the jackal okay with it, it was his idea." That's like, the moment where I was uh, like, uh, "Oh, wrong, <laughs> yeah. this is incorrect." I am so suspicious. In the end, they're at this little triumph after party that the jackal has arranged, and it's all like tasteful and everything. And Daryl's like, "Oh, this is great," but like, well, I wish Mustang were here. Why isn't Fitchner here? He sends off. Severo and Ragnar, because Severo is no. also worried that Fitchner isn't there. Fitchner isn't answering his texts, and that's why Severo's oh. worried. He's leaving everybody on red. 
Yep. He's gone dark on Facebook. <laughs> he didn't respond when Severo poked him on Facebook and like, <laughs> was like offended. But very quickly after Severo and Ragnar leave, Daryl's like, wait a minute, something's amiss. There's like this moment where he realizes that something is up with the pinks that are serving. But it's like a moment too late because, oh shit, it's Vixus and Lilith. Ugh. And in the <sighs> moment he realizes that, Broke is like, and thus with a prick you die. I'm just kidding. You're not wrong. Rogue is talking shit to Darrow, and then he's like, "BS gonna paralyze you." And then Darrow, paralyzed, has to watch everything that happens. Sees fucking Antonia, that bitch, shoot Victra in the spine and kill her mother outright. And then Lorne is incapacitated by Lilith, which I'm still just like, "How did that happen?" I know he was caught off guard, but also whatever and then killed by the jackal and then they slaughter like everyone else at the party cassius and aja arrive and they're supposed to take augustus into custody but real quick at one point cassius approaches darrow and makes a comment and i don't want any discussion on this i just want to point this out that cassius tells darrow you killed my entire family everybody the women, the children, the cousins, like, you fucking killed my entire family, right? And then he leaves Darrow, and they're supposed to take Augustus in custody, and Augustus gets rude with the jackal. Well, I guess he doesn't even get rude. I think the problem is he says, my son, you've ruined us. And it's him calling the jackal my son that really sets the jackal off. Because the jackal's like, you've never treated me like your son. And then he dips into his whole story about how he organized Carnus killing Claudius. Like he used his father's money to pay off Carnus to sleep with Claudius's girlfriend or whatever she was. And then it led to a one-on-one thing. And the jackal was 10 when he did this, to clarify. Yeah, he's essentially Littlefinger starting the whole war. And Augustus is like, you are not my son anymore. And the jackal's like, fine then. Just awesome. Straight up shoots him in the face. As much as I hate the jackal as a person, and he's obviously a psychopath and a, like, a terrible person and all of that, I love him as a character because he's absolutely fucking unhinged and you never know what mm-hmm. he's going to do next. All you know, though, is that, huh, that's suspicious. Huh, that's suspicious. List of suspicious things that the jackal has done this book. Save Quinn. Sacrifice himself to save Mustang. Suggest that Darrow should be the heir. Agree to team up with Darrow in the first place. That's just what I could think of off the top of my head. And I need you guys to know that all the other parts before this, I read at least two weeks ago. And then I read this last part all today. So like the fact that I could think of that many suspicious jackal actions just off the top of my head is great. What a weird feral dog. I love him. I don't actually love him. He amuses me and concerns me. I can't wait he for is, him to die. He is sus all the time. He is consistently suspicious. And I love that for him. So yeah, Augustus is dead. And at the very end, Rook presents the paralyzed Darrow with the box that the Triumph mask would normally be in. And when he looks inside, Darrow realizes all that has been, all that was to be, crashes down. 
Eo's dream falls into darkness because it's Fitchner's head staring back at him. Ares, the one hope they had, the man who picked Darrow up when he was broken and gave him a chance for something greater than revenge, has been butchered. And Darrow knows they are undone. As we close out this episode, I just want you guys to give me your thoughts and feelings on getting to the end of this book and like, okay, sure, like Victor's been shot, Lorne has been murdered, so many other people are dead, but... We literally just found out Fitchner was Ares after he's been an asshole the entire book and like got his whole sad backstory and then bam, head in a box. I was literally just starting to do the Rosa picks up the dog meme and I've only had Fitchner for like three chapters and if anything (laughs) happened to him, I would kill everyone in this room and then myself and then something happened to him and I was like, oh, fuck. I really enjoyed this book for all the things that it did that fucked up what you think a second book and a series should do. Because in terms of the book itself, this book was a very upsetting book because it starts low, goes high, ends low. It is a mountain in terms of what plot structure should be, but also a mountain in terms of your feelings being stuck in the ditch, except it's not just a valley, like you are in the Marinara Trench at the beginning, and then you thought that was the deepest you could go, but then the Marinara Trench had another Marinara Trench underneath it. Is it, is it the Marinara Trench or is it like the Marina Trench? I feel like it's like- Mariana. That but I best. love a marinara trench. <laughs> nice, nice it's red, just filled with spaghetti nice red sauce. sauce. Yeah, nice red sauce. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good homemade red sauce, plenty of garlic. Spaghetti trench. The question is, does the, the marinara trench have an uh, exhaust port to, as a weakness? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. But yeah, no, like it's very interesting because like the way this book is structured as an individual standalone book, like this plot structure wouldn't make sense at all in terms of highs and lows and stuff like that but like in terms of what it does in terms of connected to red rising because red rising is all upward or rather it starts even then it dips and then you go up 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 with some like little like peaks and valleys in there in the middle right but it ends up and then you start and you continue up and then you go down and then you slowly climb your way back up and then you go down further than ever. It's the society strikes back. It really is. But the other thing is that like it kind of fools you into thinking that the Empire already struck back because of what happens in the beginning of the book. And like it really sort of makes you complacent and thinks things are going to work out in the end. Because literally in terms of like book length, it's just the last third of that final chapter where things abruptly get fucked. Sometimes I feel like people who compare this book to The Empire Strikes Back and say like, but no, it's worse. Haven't actually seen The Empire Strikes Back. At the beginning of The Empire Strikes Back, they're like ensconced on a base on Hoth and they like immediately get kicked out. Like that is Darrow losing at the Academy and getting in a fight and pissed on by the Bolognas, right? And then they build back up because they think they're getting safe again. Like Luke's gone to be with Yoda and train and Han and Leia and Chewbacca at all are going to be quote unquote safe in Bespin on Cloud City. And then it's like, oh, wait, no, it's all fucked up. But that said, this is darker than the Empire Strikes Back ever could have been this is the 2000 whatever the year this book came out version of empire strikes back in that it's like 
we're going to take the things that story did, but make them so much fucking worse because life is miserable now and we hate it. It's like Empire Strikes Back, except like Han was killed. Han would have died. And so would have Leia. And also everybody. And then Luke loses a whole arm and Chewbacca's also dead for good measure. That's what this is. Yeah, I feel like it, it gives off huge like ice and fire vibes. Lorne's dead. Fitchner's dead. Victra's dead. You know, like all these people are. The, and it's like, holy shit. That's a gut punch like right at the end. It's know? wild too. Because like, uh, it's impressive to deliver a gut punch in a series that has been so willing yeah. to kill people. And yet... And yet here we are. I thought the iron rain and everybody dying in the river was going to be the worst, but nope. No, that was nothing. Those are just red shirt howlers. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say they're red shirt howlers. There was no one. Wolves. No one was killed significantly in there. Yes, theoretically, I guess weed was, but weed was a red shirt with a name. Uh, it's like you never knew anything about weed. You didn't. To be fair, statistics show that the number of red shirts percentage wise who die is actually was not very higher, high i know is it actually, was actually relatively low, than yeah. the blue and gold shirts but i know <laughs> nerds <laughs> we are all nerds <laughs> i think you're probably right this is way more of like a storm of swords red wedding vibe than it is yeah. an empire strikes oh. back vibe. Mm-hmm. like rob's finally doing some good shit winning some battles sorry <laughs> any last thoughts before we close out I mean, other than like Rip Fitchner, honestly, we did not know you enough. Rip Fitchner, Rip Victra, uh, thank you, Mustang, for picking a fight at the best possible time. Yeah. I do love how they were like, why is Mustang not here? And Jack was like, oh, lovers fight. And it's like, okay, dude. Seriously, though, moment of silence for Fitchner, aka Aries. Like, we knew him, but we did not know him as well as we wanted to for as long as we wanted to in the actual role he played. So, uh, and as we close out this episode, we just want to give a shout out to our heroes tier patron, Tommy of the TKOK podcast network. Thank you so much for supporting us. Once again, I'm Tara along with Jonathan, Nami and Steve. Don't forget. You can always hit us up at Sags and Sass on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube. Or email us at sagasandsass at gmail.com with any comments or thoughts you might have. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We will be back. Um, Let's just say we're not 100% sure, but it will be Thursday, December 22nd, or far more likely Friday, December 23rd, for our annual holiday special in which we will be discussing Elf. Nice. <laughs> so probably Friday, December 23rd. But we're going to still pushing for the Ice Age Christmas special. (laughs) Maybe someday, Jonathan. But this year I am digging on talking about Elf and how much I love it. So thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Sagas and Sass.